Welcome to Voices of the Land, where we tell a rolling story of land conservation from all angles and perspectives. Here, we explore why the Westerly Land Trust's mission to conserve open space, revitalize culturally significant properties, and provide environmental programs is beneficial to the community and to the environment. Join us on this tremendous journey of wonderment and empathy towards the natural wonders of our world. You know, Joe, it's nice down here by the shore, but it gets hot here in the summer. It sure does, Erica. It makes me want to pack a frisbee and some snacks and head to the beach. And we have some great beaches around here. It's nice to have access to a clean coastline. Yeah, but I wonder how the Rhode Island coastline is maintained and kept up, especially as it's under constant threat of development, sea level rise, pollution runoff, and other human-caused factors. Well, luckily, our friends at Save the Bay work to protect Narragansett Bay. So take your headphones and streaming platform to the beach, relax, and listen to this episode of Voices of the Land, featuring South County Coast Keeper David Prescott. Oh, wow! I used to be a ghost hunter, too. What? No, coast. Ghost. Coast, with a C. We're on the same page. So, welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks, I'm excited to be here. Awesome, we like to hear that. Our volunteer group is right outside the window, and they're using a chainsaw, which we didn't take into account. Yeah, so you may hear a little bit of that in the background. Yeah, it's all good. That's what we're doing. Dave, have you officially met Joe yet? I don't know if you've ever... Actually met in person or... Not in person. Oh, yeah, but yes, you did in your, person. Yeah. You, yeah. That's right. And you did your... Yeah, you also yeah. did your, yeah. um, your Earth Day thing together. That's right. Yeah. So how was your weekend, Dave? Uh, wet, like everyone else's. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't bad. You know, we had our... Um, we have our, our neighborhood annual brisket day. So we had a brisket count, uh, cook-off, which was, which was fun. Unfortunately, it was inside. But we did get outside for a fire. Nice. And then... What else do we do? Oh, I spent all day yesterday taking down my son's loft bed to put him back to, because he's, he's had it for about three years and he loved it, but now he's like, no, I want to go back to my regular bed. Like, there you okay. go. <laughs> so, how are, how are your weekends? Good. Wet. Good. Yeah. Gross. It went by so fast. It did. Usually does. You know, we're, we're out the whole year, as, as if we can be, so obviously, you know, January and February weren't out, but... You know, March, we were pretty flat out, April, and then finally got the boat back in the water last month. So, started a water quality testing last week, so it's kind of back a little bit to normal, a little bit. So, yeah. now, are you, you're in your new place, your new offices? Nice. Yep. Well, let's get started. Yeah. Do you, do, a- do you want to start off just telling us a little bit about your background and how you got to be the South County Coast Keeper with Save the Bay? Um, so again, my name is Dave Prescott. I am the South County Coast Keeper with Save the Bay. Um, I run our, our satellite location in downtown Westerly um, since 2007, but I've been with the organization for, this is my 20th year with Save the Bay. Uh, my background is in marine biology, environmental chemistry, and marine policy. And like I said, I've been with Save the Bay for 20 years. I started out uh, my first six years in the education department. So um, at that point, our education department was much, 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 much smaller. Um, and uh, we didn't have, you know, really many resources at all. We were basically just doing coastal programs and some in-class programs. And since that point, the education program has, has really grown. And then in uh, 2006, 2007, 
the organization had, had, had been already doing work down in the, the southern portion of the state, South County, specifically for, for years, if not decades. Um, some restoration work, a lot of advocacy work and whatnot, but we did not have a established presence down here. And um, basically, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about the waterkeeper piece of this in a second, um, but basically um, the thought was that it made um, strategic sense for us as an organization to to have a presence down here um, and to actually be able to deal with some of the, the issues and a lot of the issues that are similar to what they are in Narragansett Bay, uh, but to focus more on the southern region, more of the coastal waters, um, including uh, Little Narragansett Bay and the Lower Pawcatuck River. So my my title, so as the South County Coast Keeper, is, is very unique. Um, obviously, I work for Save the Bay, but my title is actually licensed through the Waterkeeper Alliance. And the Waterkeeper Alliance is a national and international organization of, of basically waterkeepers um, from all over the world. The majority of them are from the U.S., but we have them from all over, from Africa, from, from Europe, from Asia, you know, all over. And right now, we're, I think we're close to about somewhere around 350 waterkeepers globally. Each one of these waterkeepers serves kind of as the eyes and the ears of their local water body. So um, as a South County Coast Keeper, I specifically deal with, like, like I mentioned before, Little Narragansett Bay, the Lower Pawcatuck River, so the estuary, as well as the southern coast of Rhode Island. And those are really my big focus areas in terms of, uh, you know, geographically. And, and, and we can definitely talk about a lot of the topics and, and issues that I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And then we also have two other water keepers um, in the organization. We have the Narragansett Bay Keeper, um, which was one of the actually original water keeper programs. I think it was keeper program number eight. So it really has a lot of history. And then most recently in the last few years, we added on the Narragansett Bay River Keeper. Kate is responsible for, you know, basically more of the watershed, the, the rivers that empty into to Narragansett Bay, where um, Mike deals specifically more with, uh, with Narragansett Bay proper, and then I deal with the southern coast. What was that? What program number eight? Narragansett Baykeeper was actually waterkeeper program number eight in the oh. country, and in in, in internationally. It was in the country, but um, back when the, the program started, um, I think that was 1993, uh, the Narragansett Baykeeper program came around. So I'm kind of I'm I'm a I'm another keeper. I'm the second I'm the second keeper for Save the Bay, but I think I'm I was keeper like I don't know 160 something. So you can even see since 2007 how much those programs have really uh, basically have more than doubled since that point. Even when I came on as a, as a water keeper. Initially, I heard cheaper program number eight, and I was like, oh well, whatever works. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes we say waterkeeper, sometimes we say keeper. So yeah, if you hear me say keeper, that's that's that piece of it too. So how does that how does being a, a waterkeeper work? Like three hundred keepers globally seems kind of low to me. There's a lot of water globally. <laughs> that's a really great point because if you start thinking about every single water body around the world, um, yeah, you could have tens of thousands of keepers. You know, when it really comes down to it, but. The way that Waterkeeper Alliance grew was more strategic, looking at areas where there were already some really big issues. So like, so for instance, my say fellow waterkeepers down south, they're dealing with water quality similar to what I deal with here, but they're dealing with things like CAFOs, so confined animal feeding operations, like massive, massive, you know, uh, poultry or pig farms and whatnot that are 
you know, huge pollutants to the local rivers. They're dealing with things like coal ash. Like there was uh, several years ago, there was um, a big coal ash spill into one of the local rivers there that was really major. So each one of us, each waterkeeper deals with the different issues within their region there. I should also mention, too, that I'm also currently the North Atlantic Regional Representative for the Waterkeeper Alliance. Um, so we actually have a group of us uh, waterkeepers that either represent different regions around the country and around the world and speak on behalf of that region. So in this region here, I think there's 25 there's somewhere between 20 and 25 waterkeepers that I basically communicate with and try to highlight and elevate our issues here locally. And then there's other keepers around other parts of the country or the world that they're dealing with very different issues and, and whatnot. But in terms of the growth, that there could be so many more. I think it's, you know, the way that we work along with the staff at the Waterkeeper Alliance is really thinking about strategic growth. Like where are the resources to be able to support having a waterkeeper? It may sound great, like you can think of a even a third world nation where there are some water keepers. There are there are lots of water keepers all over the place, um, but they may not have the same kind of resources to, to be able to support that water keeper. Because as a water keeper, the other piece too is that we had we have to adhere to thirteen um, quality standards, things such as being the voice for the resource, um, being a full time advocate. So that means you can't be a part time. You need this needs to be a full time job. You know, other things about how you use the waterkeeper name, things you work on, all that kind of stuff. You know, like it is it is strategic. And actually, Waterkeeper Alliance right now is going through a whole strategic planning um, process to make sure that, you know, we you know work um, strategically on growth. Uh, I feel very honored to be talking to one of 300 waterkeepers in the world, but also one of 20 in the Northeast, which seems yep. low on the other hand. <laughs> it does. It does. And, uh, you know, and, and there's still some like strategic areas, like even here in the Northeast, like we don't have, we used to have a, a mass Massachusetts Baykeeper, but she moved on. And so we've been missing a waterkeeper in Boston. And Boston's a huge hub and has some huge environmental issues. I mean, it's definitely the water quality, especially around Boston Harbor, has improved dramatically but um there's still a lot of big issues there and, and it's 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 not to say there aren't other organizations that are fighting those fights but to have a waterkeeper on your staff allows you to bridge and, and become part of something much larger but when i talk about that like oh you know here in the region then they're like what region you know right right in south county i'm like no in the North Atlantic region, we're dealing with this fisheries issue. There was an issue on with Menhaden and, and, and Menhaden fishing and whatnot and how important that industry was. So um, a good chunk of the North Atlantic waterkeepers signed on to that, which is always, you know, it's strength in numbers. So by having other waterkeepers and other regional areas there, um, we can connect, you know, we can connect on these issues. We meet once a month. We meet reg uh, regionally as, as an organization. Uh, once once a year, and then every other year we, we with, meet with all the other waterkeepers somewhere. So next year we will actually be meeting in DC, and actually the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. Nice. And speaking of DC, I mean, how much of your job is trying to create legislation or advocating for that for for different laws and protections? And is DC included in the nor in the Northeast region? They're not. So no, DC is not included in the Northeast region for our North Atlantic waterkeepers. That that's more the Chesapeake, Mid Atlantic um, region. But in terms of legislation and advocacy and whatnot, 
Um, we actually have a couple other staff at Save the Bay who actually do more with that that are at the state house testifying and whatnot. However, that being said, that all definitely trickles down to all of us to be communicating on on some of the some of the legislation that we're trying to either support or push ourselves as an organization. So things like you know, let me give a good, good example. Oscar, it's basically a it's Ocean State. Uh, gosh, I'm gonna forget about it. Ocean State Climate Adaptation Program. Uh, program. Um, and and no, Climate Adaptation and Resilience Fund. And what that is is that would be a a fund to basically help communities deal specifically with resilience. So so basically, what it would be would be a tax on not a tax, but a uh, a cost on uh, on, on oil coming into the state here, so a portion of that would go into a fund that would then be used for dealing with resilience on the local level. Because, you know, that's a big, big challenge with all of these kind of environmental issues that whether it's water quality or climate change or coastal, coastal issues or whatnot, there are so many more projects than there actually are funds for that. And part of this this Oscar fund, which we've been pushing for the last several years, is the opportunity to be able to funnel money directly towards towns that are actually working to increase their resilience. That, and that means like maybe they're looking at areas that currently flood and, and how to how to deal with that. Maybe you know, they, they, they have an area that floods all the time. There's no homes on it, but maybe they want to abandon that area there. So removing pavement. It could be lots of other things, but it's true resilience. It's not like putting a seawall up. Seawall is not resilient. Seawall is trying to hold back nature. That's not truly resilience. So these these would be more funds that would go directly towards helping local water quality and, and, and the communities becoming more resilient. And what came first for you? Did you become a water keeper or did you join Save the Bay first? Save the Bay first, yeah. So I worked with Save the Bay first with the education department, and then you know when we expanded down here, and we had the we had a really good model of the Narragansett Baykeeper program, and you know part of it too was the Narragansett Baykeeper program couldn't spend his time all throughout the bay and the watershed and the South Coast, so that's why we thought kind of strategically about where does it make sense to actually have put other boots on the ground. And actually have to have physical locations because that's a really big thing. You know, if, if there's something happening down here, and it's challenging down here, I should say, because not only are we talking about two different towns, so Stonington and Wesley, but we're also talking about two different states. And the regulations from one side to the other are different and challenging. And initially, the communication between those groups was not what it is now. And it took a long time. You know, I worked, and actually, this, this goes way back to um, working with the, the Western Land Trust on organizing bi-state meetings and bi-state um, workshops. So we used to, I used to work with Kelly, and we would use the, the old industrial bank building, and we'd have, yeah, we'd have like 30 or 40 people come in there just to have the conversation from both sides of, of the river, from both states, and come down there and kind of talk about, you know, water quality issues, talk about some of the studies that were happening, and how best to coordinate on a more bi-state and regional level. Um, because again, even though there's a political boundary there, the fish don't know. They're on both sides. If you're kayaking down the, the river there, you don't know which side you're on, you know, and it doesn't really matter. There really has to be a lot better communication. I'll, I'll give you one really quick example of early on kind of this kind of lack of coordination. So I'm out doing water quality testing, and I'm going back up the river, and I hear sirens going off like 
crazy in Pawkatuck. And I'm like, what is going on? I see, you know, flashing lights and sirens. And this was the day that the Yardney uh, battery uh, plant had an explosion, like a pretty major explosion. And so I'm like, what is going on? So finally, get my boat back into the marina there. And I dr- I'm driving back to the office for Westerly. Do you think anything's happening there? People like whistling, you know, like da da da. There's no, there's no fire trucks yet. I, I find out that they evacuated like what was it, eight or ten blocks. Westerly's like da da da. And it wasn't until later that night that I was watching the news and they said, yeah, Yardney had this huge explosion. And I'm like, oh my god, this is crazy that there's kind of these. I'm not saying there was a lack of communication, but it just didn't seem like the same sense of urgency especially in an area where, the, where both sides are so close together. And the same thing was true in terms of, of water quality because both Rhode Island DEM and Connecticut DEP were both working on different water quality studies. They have these water quality studies called TMDLs. They stand for Total Maximum Daily Load. And basically what it is, it's a water quality study that looks at a certain pollutant and it says, how much of that pollutant can we add to this water body and still be able to pass Clean Water Act standards? And the Pocketuck, so definitely from the downtown section all the way basically out to the mouth is is impaired. Um, it's impaired for for bacteria. So that you know there's some really high counts that are coming in there. And and so back to the studies, DEM was doing one study, one TMDL, and then Connecticut was doing another study, but nothing meshed up. Like you need data from both sides. So what ultimately came out of that was that. With both states working together, they were able to accelerate the timeline for getting that report done and, and start working with those communities on it, on really addressing these really historical water quality issues. Both Stonington and Westerly are beautiful but old, you know, towns, and they have very old infrastructure. And that old infrastructure is, you can see if you read the paper, you can see it, you know, here in the town council meetings, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's, you know, still sources of bacteria under, under Wilcox Park and trying to figure out you know, still emptying into the river after, you know, after every heavy rainstorm and, and whatnot. And I see that. I mean, before we were talking, I was talking about getting the boat, the boat back on the water. So we started up our testing with URI. So I go out every two weeks from May through October and gather all the samples. I process a bunch of the samples and then some samples we send back to URI. And so this is my 14th year doing that. And prior to opening an actual physical location down here, there was some data but it was kind of sporadic, you know, like, so the Woodpocketuck Watershed Association had a lot of data there, which was good. But, you know, further down the river, there wasn't a really good long-term data set. You know, it was kind of more sporadic. So that was part of my role um, in order to better understand the issues that that we were dealing with is to really understand the water and to get out there and test. So, again, I'm out there all the time um, doing all the testing out there. And, and, and it's really, you know, we're at the point where we have a really great database now and we can say, yeah, this is an issue. You know, yeah, this is an issue. So what's come out of that is that there has been a big study with Rhode Island DEM, Connecticut DEP, Save the Bays involved on looking at nutrients and dissolved oxygen. So we've been working on that for the last three years because that's a very big issue. Nutrients, this goes right back to whether you're a, a water conservation group or a land conservation group. We're, we've always been taught that nutrients are a good thing, but too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. And that's one of the big challenges that we have seen in Little Narragansett Bay. So if you think about the, the size of the watershed uh, for the Pocketuck River, for the wooden Pocketuck Rivers, it's massive. It's over 300 square miles. And you're dumping 
everything from not just the downtown sections down here, but all the way up into the watershed. So think about things from farms to turf farms to you know property to, to industrial sites to everything. And then you get to the downtown section, and now we have old infrastructure, we have septic systems, we have sewage treatment plants, we have everything, and that's all funneling its way into Little Narragansett Bay. And out there, you know, I love Little Narragansett Bay. You know, it's, I love spending my summers out there. I love heading up to Sandy Point and Napa Street Point. And from the surface, it doesn't look that bad. But when you actually start going under the water and seeing what under the water looks like, that's where you have the real challenges. And we have a big challenge with this one, really this one type of algae. So we have an overabundance of, of macroalgae. Um, it's known as Clodophora. So Clodophora, if you think about like a green furlough pad, it's, it looks almost like that. And it loves nutrients. So think about all these nutrients pouring into from the, in from the watershed down there. And then at the bottom of the, of the river, you know, in, the, in, the, in Little Narragansett Bay, you have this great little algae there. Like, oh, look at this. And it's yeah. sucking up all that nutrient. So from, again, from the surface, everything looks great. But once you get into the water, under the water, that's where you see the challenges. And when you have such a massive amount of algae on the bottom there, it's smothering the life that normally would live there. You can barely find like bay scouts. They used to be really everywhere down there. And and those numbers have really gone down because it's literally smothered. You don't see as many fish down there. And it's also changing the sediment underneath that because one of the challenges with having too much of a good thing, in this case, algae, um, is that that algae, you know, like, like plants, produces lots of oxygen. But it also needs a huge amount of oxygen for bacteria to actually break it down. And when that happens, you can get very low oxygen or even no oxygen, so either um, anoxic or, or it's a hypoxic or anoxic conditions. And when you have that, then you can basically have fish kills or shellfish kills or whatnot. And that's a, that's a big scary thing. That is the one thing we don't want down here. And we haven't had anything major in, in huge numbers, but I've seen some smaller um, shellfish kills like washed up on sandy beach and whatnot because of that lack of oxygen down there. So again, nutrients are a good thing. Um, but too much is not a good, it's a bad thing. And, and like I said, it's really kind of changed that the bottom environment, little Narragansett Bay, it's very highly organic. The best way to describe it is almost like black mayonnaise. All right. You know what mayonnaise looks like, right? Yeah. And you know how it's kind of like that gelatinous? That's what the bottom of the bay is becoming because as that algae is breaking down, it's forming this really super organic layer down there. And, and we noticed this back, um, back in 2000. Well, right after we opened the office back in 2008 and 2009, we were doing um, some benthic dive surveys. So we think we did about 30, I think it was about 30 to 40 dive surveys. We laid out transects in um, all throughout Little Narragansett Bay, both on the north side of Sandy Point and on the south side uh, in between Napa Tree, and then a little bit up the river too to look specifically at um, eelgrass population and also look at the shellfish population. Because at that same time, we were doing um, eelgrass restoration in other parts of the bay and actually in some parts of the salt ponds. And then we were also doing scallop restoration. So we said, you know, Little Narragansett Bay would be a great place to do that. And when we got under there, you know, the best way for me to describe it was the amount of algae going down the water. And it's not deep, you know, it's like 13 feet deep at the deepest in, in the section that we dove. And you could just see algae everywhere. I remember like diving through it. Right? And, and it, it was like a haunted like a haunted forest it's like over your head like it was crazy i guess everyone's like well how thick is this stuff in some cases it's a couple inches thick in some cases it's like 
feet thick, you know, and it's significant because that stuff is, is not breaking, it's not breaking down fast enough. And again, it's thriving in these high nutrient conditions. So we need to address the nutrient load that's coming down the river from all sources. Like right now, the, you know, the permit is up for the Westerly Wastewater Treatment Facility. And one of the big things for them is they're, they're being, as part of their permit conditions, they're going to be reducing their nutrient load significantly. And that's great. You know, that, that, that's a, that's a really, really great thing. But there are a lot of other sources that we need to address as well. You, you know, usually you tackle those, those point sources first. So the sources you can actually point to and say, yep, that's where it's coming from. And then you deal with these kind of more diffuse non-point sources like the watershed. Maybe looking at a, uh, a solid uh, septic system program where people are required to to make sure that they are pumping out on a normal basis, they're getting their their, their septic systems inspected. Other towns like um, Charlestown has a has a fertilizer ordinance um, where they work with local landscaping companies on on getting basically certified, make sure they're not adding too many nutrients. You know, and this goes back to how we've been taught for so long. I know Benny's is no longer around, but you know, Benny's every year, you know, in the in the springtime would come up with, oh, all you need is the, you know, the four part, you know, four bag system here of, of Scott's four part system. You know, everyone's like, this is easy. I have to put four bags out, no problem. But half the time they were treating their lawn for something they didn't have. Like one was a grub control. Well, if I don't have grubs, why am I putting a, a pesticide on my grass too? And, and again, that's all this excess nutrients um, that are getting into this area here. So it's this is a big challenge that I deal with. You know, the other big challenge that I deal with in this area is climate change. And that's from the standpoint of both the built environment and also the natural environment. The built environment's more challenging um, because of the fact is it's already hard. We already have a solid, hard built, you know, roads, buildings, streets, everything like that. And it's really hard for communities to even think about having to, at some point, move that infrastructure away from these basically either heavy erosion areas or areas that are flooding because of higher sea levels or coastal storms or whatnot. Um, and then you have the natural environment, which is having the same issues. And we can talk about that because we've obviously we've been doing some work on, on the land trust property too as well. Of you know, So you have these really great habitats like salt marshes that because of higher sea levels are being flooded more often. And that water is impounding the marsh more frequently and causing vegetation to die off and bare spots and lots of other challenges too. So we've been working on that. But a lot of the, and, and I should say like the whole water quality, stormwater piece and climate change are interrelated. They really are because, you know, more rain means more runoff, means more pollution. And it, it, it's, like I said, it's, it's very challenging. You know, we had Sandy. I was, I was literally just looking through photos of Sandy. I know this is random, but um, I was looking for some flooding photos and um, it's hard to imagine that it's like, wow, that storm hit. And we thought that was such a bad storm. And it was. Here in Westerly, it caused a lot of damage. It wasn't like the 38. And you think about how much of our communities have built up since, even like whether the 38 or Hurricane Carol or whatnot, how much more we've actually really built up. There have been some really good things where communities have become, in, in, you know, kind of talk about more resilient, um, but we also have a long way to go. Like you think about the Wesley uh, Town Beach, they actually moved that pavilion back. Not much, but they moved it back, which is a step in the right direction. They could have probably moved it almost all the way to the to Atlantic Ave and given themselves a little bit more space, but it's a start in the right direction. Sam Snack Bar, 
it's not really it's not permanent anymore. Like thinking about business and thinking about things and using a different model rather than like Bill, 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 Bill. Yeah, we can hold back anything because we're smart and we do it. You know, when you look at the storms that we've had, not just up here, but throughout the country and how damaging they are, it really, you know, a lot of the decisions that we've made in the past about where we actually live, work, and play are being really challenged by these climate change conditions, like more intense uh, rainfall events. We don't get sprinkles anymore. I remember as a kid, we had like little sprinkles, and as a kid, run around little sprinkles and stuff like that. We don't get that. We get huge downpours. Think of this past weekend. I think we got... I think we've got over three inches of rain. Well, I was going to ask you that, Dave, because you are, are tuned in, obviously. You're tuned into the weather. You're tuned into the to – you're actually seeing the samples in the river. And we yep. did see weeks of drought followed by heavy downpours, condensed. So I'm not from New England. I've lived here for a number of years, but I don't have my, like, finger to the pulse in terms of the – trends but like joe and i have discussed before i lived up here before and i remember it snowing heavily and now there's not a lot of snow so talk talk about that like talk about what the trends are that you've seen over your 14 years of taking water samples and, and whatever in, ter- in terms of climate change wait can i interrupt for a second yeah. i've been trying to keep mental notes of stuff i wanted to talk about <laughs> <laughs> first i just wanted to yeah emphasize like one of the things we're trying to talk about in this podcast is that everything is connected. And yeah, what happens on land will affect what happens in the water and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But I had a funny story when you were talking about this like forests of seaweed. Do you hear my funny story? Oh, of course. So back in college, I was working on this research project. And we had to take water samples and oyster cages at low and high tide. And I went out on high tide. And for some reason, I just like, I felt a calling to go, to be the one to go dive down and collect the water samples. And maybe that calling was like, so I could share the story now. I don't know. (laughs) I just, I felt like I had to do it. Even though I have such a fear of like depth of being under water. You said depth, right? Not depth. Depth. Yeah. (laughs) I don't, it's a weird fear. I don't know how to to describe it. Um, Maybe that's why I felt like I had to do it to prove to myself I could. But I had to dive down like 10 feet and it was just, in a little alcove in Narragansett Bay, we were on a dock, a high tide, it was like 10 feet in head. So I um, dove down and I put the syringe in the oyster cage and I was pulling up water samples. But when I dove down, this piece of seaweed, like a huge piece, wrapped on my ankle. And I just felt something slimy <laughs> grab my ankle. It's like, this is it. Uh, it's a sea monster I've been dragged under. All my greatest fears. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I'm back at the surface. I'm like hyperventilating, trying to talk to the person I'm working with who's on the dock. And uh, I'm passing up the syringe to her. So she grabs it and like it sweats underwater. So then her hand reaching down is dripping water as well. And I didn't notice that, but I just saw these drips of water in front of me and I thought they were like air bubbles coming up and I was like not only am I being grabbed but now there is something right in front of me like breathing air bubbles up to the surface and I'm just gonna get speared by this 20 foot sea monster <laughs> in 10 feet of water but you're fine but I'm fine <laughs> that was my story <laughs> no it's you know when you see that like I should say you know especially down in, in little areas man I'll get back to the trends in a second like um there are certain points of the year where um that algae will all come to the surface, and, and, and it basically same thing. So when 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 the bacteria is breaking it down again, they're using up a lot of oxygen, and, and that stuff will actually flip to the surface. And I remember being out one day, and I, I after I got back in, I kind of plotted it out 
on GIS with a, with a, like a, or like a Google map, right? And it was about 75 acres of algae that all was at the surface. And so it's very significant, you know, and, and again, it, it is completely related to, to these trends that we're seeing. So for instance, so again, starting my 14th year of water quality testing, what we have seen is that because the winters have not been as cold as normal. Now, like anything, it's cyclical. Yes, like some years are colder, some years are warmer and whatnot, but the overall trend is going in the upward direction. We are getting warmer temperatures. We are starting the season off warmer. So the water quality is warmer than normally it would be. So, so again, we start in May. So for instance, last week when I went out, so I, I test seven different sites in Little Narragansett Bay and the Pawkatuck River. There's four in the Pawkatuck and there's three in Little Narragansett Bay. From basically the, the two sites that I test from Wesley Yacht Club up to Viking Marina, let's say, the water temperature was already almost at 70, right? 70 degrees in the river. It was like 69 point something. 70 degrees in the river last week, so it was at May 20 something, right? The winter temps aren't getting it as cold. We're not having freezing events on the river as much. I think the last time we had a really significant freeze on the river was back in 2005, where it actually froze a good section of Little Narragansett Bay, but we don't see that much anymore. Yes, we'll have some cold snaps that will freeze the river for like a week, maybe two weeks, but not like these month plus times. And again, because of that, you know, the temperatures are starting warmer. The other thing is with all the drought that we've been having and the lack of water, because there's less water in the rivers, that water also warms up much quicker. So these are big, big changes we're seeing. The problem with, everyone's like, well, I, I like 70 degree water, that sounds great. And, and even that same section I talked about from Wesley Yacht Club up to, uh, up to Viking Marina, last year and the year prior to that were the warmest water temperatures I've seen in there in the, in the 12 or 13 years I've been testing, like, like close to 85. Oh. Like extremely warm temperatures. Now, again, Someone's going to say, well, I, I think that's great. You know, think how warm the beach is, you know, and, you know, I, I could spend hours in there and whatnot. But one of the issues with that is that if you are a organism that lives in the water and you rely on dissolved oxygen in the water to survive, say as a fish or a crab or whatnot, the warmer the water is, the less oxygen that that water can actually hold. So, so again, you, you get into these, to these conditions where there's not as much oxygen in the water um, for lots of different reasons, and, and that can really impact what's living on there. Um, the same thing's true with rainfall events. Like I said, we're having these more intense rainfall events. I actually just, you can look at these these records, but I have actually been just taking a little calendar for the last couple of years of recording every single time we have a rainfall event, um, just to get an idea of, you know, what kind of storms we're getting. And we're getting these massive storms. There we really are. They're, you know, sometimes short-lived, sometimes they're longer, like over this past Memorial Day weekend. But the problem with that is that when you have these increased storms, especially following a drought for so long, you're sweeping everything off the roads, roofs, storm drains, and, and putting that right in the water. And, and we see automatically after a rainstorm like that, you see a major spike in the bacteria there. I know we've been talking a lot about the animals that live there, and, and they are important too, but we're also animals as well, and we're important. Right. And one of the challenges with that is that with increased bacteria, bacteria is the like one indicator that will really make us sick, like really, really make us sick. And I, and I say this not just, you know, because I've read all the stories about people getting sick. 
I am one of the stories of people getting sick. I've been living down in Charlestown for about 20 years now, but prior to that, I lived for about eight years over in Newport. I can't remember the year it was exactly, but anyway, so I was, I'm, I'm, I'm also a big surfer and we're kind of the, unfortunately, the kind of the canary in the coal mine when it comes to water quality and how healthy our local waters are for humans. And so, you know, there's been a lot of times when I'll get out of the water, I just don't feel right. But there was this one time I was surfing in, in Newport, I think it was January, and it was after a little coastal low came through and, you know, we got a little bit of wet snow and whatnot. And the surf was decent, you know, so I went out there and, and surfed for, for an hour. And I, you know, got out of the water and I, getting out of the water, I just did not feel right, you know. And luckily, I live five minutes away because popped my board on top of my truck, got in my car and went home. And I'm just like, I just didn't. And I was viciously sick for... 24 straight hours. Ugh. And the same point, you know, I have friends in town and we went to dinner. I was like, I probably ate something or whatever, you know, like that was probably it. Well, when I'm leaving the beach to head back home, I noticed these emergency vehicles by the pump station over in Middletown, right on the border of Newport and Middletown. And again, I didn't think anything of it. At the same time, I was also still, I was sitting on the Newport Beach Commission. So a couple days later, I think it was like a Tuesday when we had our meetings, I talked to, um, the beach manager, Ray Fulton, who was there at the time, he's now retired. I said, Ray, did you see those um, those trucks outside there on like Sunday or whatnot? He's like, no. So he goes and, and checks it out and calls me back very early the next morning. He's like, it was an illegal discharge of 10,000 gallons of raw sewage. Ooh. The flapper valve on the pump station failed and it pumped directly, directly into the Easton's Bay where I was surfing. And basically, I ingested that. You know, all, all that raw sewage there and got viciously, viciously sick. So this is, you know, like water quality is a really, really important thing. Not just, you know, not just for swimming, but also for those who enjoy um, shellfish. You know, you know, you, you shouldn't be harvesting in enclosed areas, A, um, but B, after, after storms and whatnot, because of the fact, um, because of what's being carried down um, the rivers or whatnot um, that can pollute that area. And obviously... If it is an issue, the state will shut it down, at least for shell fishing. But, you know, like, again, water quality, you know, is completely interrelated to our to our health. And, and this is all interrelated to the changes that we're seeing in climate. And some people may say, oh, it's not, these are just small changes. Okay. I mean, you can, if you look at the tide gauge in Rhode Island, so Rhode Island's fortunate to have a nice, a great tide gauge over new, right? And it's one of the oldest in the, in, the, in the region. And basically, that was put in sometime in the 1930s. So we have almost 100 years worth of tidal data, right? So since 1930 to today, we have seen about 11 inches of sea level rise. Just under, just under 11 inches. It's like 10 point something. And you can think, well, you know, that's, that's, that's nothing. You know, you're talking about, what are you talking about, an inch? You know, maybe, maybe every 10 years. But if you actually look at that, if you actually plot that out there, it's on a constant increase, right? But from about 1930 to about 1990, it was on a steady incline, right? And then from about 1990 to today, it's been on a very significant increase there. So almost, you know, in some cases, almost three times of what the rate was, two to three times what the rate was in that prior area from the 1930s, 1990s. Now, now we're on a much more significant rise, a sea level rise. And that, again, is having some really big... Um, challenges to the built environment. And, I, and I'm saying, think of Watch Hill, all right? Think of Atlanta Gap, 
I'm not just talking about the Squamican area. I'm talking about the marsh area further to the east there, where that where basically the water is coming across that. Think about going up the breachway right there. There's that little bridge that goes across that little marsh. That that's flooding. We're seeing this more and more often. And again, it's not just impacting the built environment, the roads that we travel on, or you know the, the areas that we we go to businesses and whatnot. But it's also impacting the the our coastal habitats. And it's it's a really big challenge um, because just based upon the rate of of growth in this community, we here in Rhode Island rely almost solely on tourism. We don't want that to disappear uh, because we'd be in a lot of trouble. So we have to think about really what our future looks like with higher sea levels. I mean, right now, the, the, if you look at the NOAA predictions for sea level rise, we're looking at, by the year 2100, we're looking at somewhere between 9 and 11 feet of sea level rise. So that basically means that that is very significant. You know, now, it's still a long ways out, but... We can keep kicking that can down the road and just say, well, just we'll just wait to the next bad storm and then we'll address it. Or we can be very proactive and lead as as an example and really have communities that are truly resilient, that are thinking about the future, that are thinking about moving infrastructure away, that are thinking about how how to preserve natural habitats, similar to what the land trust does. I mean, that you guys, it's a super huge role to be able to preserve coastal property or habitats to be able to migrate to, such as, you know, the, the Winnipeg Farm Preserve. There's a great place where most of Winnipeg is developed, but that kind of northwestern section that, you know, Land Trust has and Audubon has, that that's a place where salt marshes can actually migrate to. Because those, bless you, those beautiful, nice. um, <laughs> those beautiful uh, marshes on the south side of, on the, oh, sorry, I should say on the north side of Atlantic Eye, but on the south side of Winnipeg, are going to be completely underwater, and there's no place for them to migrate to. But having having preserved property in that northwest corner allows for that marsh, at least for a little bit, to be able to migrate to higher land, to be able to preserve all those super important ecosystem functions and, and benefits that they do provide. You know, most people historically have seen salt marshes as, you know, stinky, slimy, smelly, not good for anything, let's fill them in i.e. province, i.e. New York, i.e. Boston. Those are all areas that were wetlands that were basically filled in because we needed places to to build. But now we're looking at saying, you know, that probably wasn't the best of ideas. You know, trying to to basically build build our, our communities and our towns and our cities so close to the water and the challenges that some of these coastal communities that are having now and are going to see you know, worsen in the future, are, 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 these are going to be huge challenges and they're going to be very costly. And so, again, the more that organizations and, and you know, working with homeowners and whatnot to, to look at locations where we can where we can preserve property to, to again, kind of, uh, you know, preserve those benefits um, is really, really important going forward. And I think when we talk about these topics like sea level rise, people who don't think about it every day or as in-depth as we would, um, it may just seem like an abstract concept, so I just want to add that, yeah, so not only do we have the flooding, which is bad in itself, but that expands into urban properties, people's houses, it puts them into closer contact with bacteria, especially if, like, a sewage um, or sewer drain overflows and then brings, like, bacteria back into that water. If you care about nesting shorebirds, it can wash away those nests or push those birds inland, flooding roads so people can't get to work. There's just a lot of economics to that as well, if you care about the economic side. There are so many ways 
to look at all these problems. They are, and they're, and they're challenged by the fact that coastal property is taxed so heavily. It's, 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 personally, I think it's the wrong model that, yes, do you get a beautiful view or you're right there on the beach? Absolutely. But when a major storm comes and wipes you out, so think about, like, I always try to go back and again, I didn't live through 38, I didn't live through 54, but 38, the, the damage swath took debris all the way to Route 1 in South County. Most of those were summer shacks. And there are building, you know, codes that make us build stronger and higher and whatnot. But again, if if your road is completely washed out and you're on stilts and there's no way to get to your property after that storm, is that really, you know, worth it? And it's very, very challenging because again, all of these coastal communities, especially in South County, rely so heavily on that first and second row um, along the beach to pay for taxes. And to, and to basically fund how the, the town functions. And in my opinion, it's not a good model going forward because at some point um, we are going to get hit. We know we are to do. We know, you know, just based upon the storms of the past, that we know that this area does and will get hit. And the question is, are we ready for it? Even after Sandy, I think a lot of things, you know, like, oh, we're bigger, we're better, we're stronger, we're higher. But we're not. But so are the storms. In some cases, we're a little more resilient. But, you know, we're still as much in risk as we were, if not more. You know, because now, you know, every year the sea level gets a little bit higher. That means the flooding gets a little bit further inland. And um, it's really challenging. And it's one of those topics that I think a lot of people just wish would go away. But it's not, you know, and, and that's why we have to have these kind of conversations and, and, and kind of really get it out there and get people to embrace it and to understand that, you know, these things that, you know, things that we want to protect, like our beaches and whatnot, um, are going to take money in order to become more resilient. We need to think differently about infrastructure. We need to think differently about all of this kind of stuff. And um, so this, these are the fun topics that I get to think about each and every day. You know, like I wish there was, you know, I, I wish there was an answer for all of this. I really do. I wish there was a simple thing that I'm like, are you dreaming at night? I got it. That's it. That's what we're going to do. But there's not. And um, do you feel it like keeps it, me up at night. It really does. I was going to ask, it, do you, really does. it must weigh heavily on it because on you because you are seeing firsthand the effects. And, yeah. And, and definitely, even though the we're getting more people involved in the conversation there's not enough people involved in the conversation to really think about how our future should look you know and it takes everyone absolutely everyone to be invested in it you know like people come here because of our beaches guess what our beaches will always be here they really will it may not be as as wide or as bad as we have right now but there will always be some sort of fringing beach along the shoreline here the question is is all that infrastructure going to be there it doesn't need to be you know, could you set up a trolley system? Could you, you know, like, could you, there's so many things to think about. And, and that, Public that's why the whole resilient term is like, if you're thinking about infrastructure and you're really thinking about the long term, um, that's how you can be more resilient. Not just saying I can hold it back with a seawall because we know that doesn't work, you know? So we try, we continue to try. We're still trying here in the state. And it, it causes a lot of other issues like, you know, loss of public access and, and ultimate loss of your beach, too. And, and again, you know, why do people come here? They come here from tourism. They come here for our beautiful beaches. That's first and foremost. And those are the kind of things that we need to protect, you know. And, and, and again, same thing with marshes. 
property protected by land trust and stuff like that. that is all where these habitats are migrating to. So having that protected is so, 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 so important. I can't underscore that enough. It really isn't, you know. And mental health is something that would also be at risk. If you're losing access to nature, then that's going to affect your mental health. And so why preserved land and natural barriers for natural resiliency is so important. Uh, or another reason why it's so important. No, a- absolutely. It's where I find solace. It really does. You know, if I'm like, all right, you know, I just need to go out surfing for a little bit and just be out there in the midst of it all. And, and um, But not in raw sewage. Yeah. <laughs> <I know. laughs> and, then, and then looking at a seawall, which doesn't help the cause, but whatever. Right. <laughs> uh, One other thing I want to talk about, though, is that you mentioned the hurricane of 1938 um, and 54, I think you just mentioned. I haven't heard that one. But... These people might look back and be like, oh, these have always happened. But, like, yes, 100-year storms do happen naturally, but now we're seeing 100-year storms more often, aren't we? Yes, and, and this is this is the hard thing, too, about the, the term 100-year storm. That the 100-year storm, everyone thinks, okay, you know, 1938, we have to, to 2038 till the next 100-year storm. And what a 100-year storm really is, is a 1% chance storm. So what that means is that any given year, there is a 1% chance that a major storm like 1938 will hit. And that could be this year, and then next year, and then the following year. You could get it three years in a row. It just it's that 1% storm. So everyone falls back, like, oh, that was a 25-year storm. We won't get that again. Like, Sandy was like a 25-year storm here. Um, so that's pretty significant for a 25-year storm, the damage that happened there, for only a 25-year storm. You think about the, the floods of 2010, right? That was somewhere near, near a 500 to 600 year storm. So does that mean that we're not going to, for 500 years, we're not going to get floods like that at all? Absolutely not. Because think of how much stuff we've kind of kind of boxed in and built up and whatnot. You know, like we should expect those more and more often. And um, it's challenging. Part of the challenge, too, is like a lot of people don't have the collective memory of what these storms and the damage that they cause. You know, some anecdotal stories and some great, you know, Sudden Sea 38, you know, like all, all those great, really great anecdotal accounts of the storms and the damage. But in our collective mind, most of us don't. There are a lot of people that have moved into these communities um, from out of state or whatnot. And, um, and, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, even, even since Sandy, houses have built back you know, maybe stronger, a little bit higher, but but again, super challenging. Well, we are ha- happy to have you, Dave, uh, especially as a, a host keeper. And I know, like, when uh, Joe and I set out to do this um, podcast, we were thinking about land conservation, land conservation, land con- conservation, but it's so important to highlight the work that you guys are doing because, as Joe has mentioned, it's all interconnected. And uh, while we are a land conservation organization, we couldn't do the things that we do without you guys doing what you do. So it's all all very important work. Yeah, and it's so it's so interconnected, you know. And, and the land trust over the years has done some really great projects. Like I, I was, we were just up at um, Boomfridge where they just redid the road there yeah. and stuff. And and um, I remember, you know, Kelly was working. I think it was like an NRCS grant, working on like a self waterer for the. You guys have an easement on on one on the farm on the Wesley side and whatnot, mm-hmm. but yet on the Connecticut side, the North Stonington side, 
the cow's still going the river. Yeah. So it's all interconnected. It, you can't, it, it, it's, it is so interconnected. Mm-hmm. The whole land and sea interface is not, you know, it's not one or the other, it's both. And they, they both play a major, 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 major role. So, so whatever, you know, whatever's going on, you know, properties like, and I know land trusts are a little bit different, you know, because manage everything so well. Um, but oh, people, okay. <laughs> you know, like, right. So, but like septic systems and, and fertilizers, pesticides, all that stuff's getting out there. Again, these areas are no longer summer communities. They are year round communities. And that's great. I'm not saying anything bad about that. I think that that's great. I've I, I made my life down here and, um, and I love it down here. And I think it's just, it goes to show the amount of challenges that are out there from the environmental side of things and, 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 how, and really how much work we have to do going forward. It's not, you know, like everyone that's, everyone always says like, say the day, you guys have been around for 51 years. Yeah. Is it the same yet? And it's like, no, it's like the issues have just got more complex. You know, it was really easy to be able to point to a, a sewage treatment plant that was pumping up raw sewage in downtown Providence and say, yep, that's the issue. Or, you know, or a, a jewelry factory that's pumping, whatever, pumping toxins into the river. It is so much harder now to deal with those sources, you know, because they're not, you can't just point to them and say that's exactly where it's coming from. So the challenges that we're having from nutrients to plastics like plastics alone, it's crazy. Like we've done a bunch of um, a bunch of studies throughout Narragansett Bay and here here down in, in Little Narragansett Bay in the Pocketuck. Um, a bunch of um, we got a grant for a, a mantatrol um, to collect microplastic samples. And you know, like I remember we were we were up in uh, the Taunton River, which is also another wild and scenic river. Right, very exciting. Yeah. And we were in this. Super pristine area. I'd never been up this far on the Taunton River in Uncle. And I'm like, oh, I bet you won't find anything up here. So, middle of nowhere, right? Forest everywhere, all protected, huge river buffer. Oh, beautiful. So, we start doing our trawls up there. We trawl for like, I don't know, 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes, something like that. Come up there, pull it up. Not much in there, pull it up. But all of a sudden, you start looking at the sample. And all of a sudden, you look and you're like, what is that? And it's this little teeny tiny piece of blue. And it's as soon as I saw it, I knew exactly what it was. It was a piece of a tarp. All right. So think about a tarp that's been sitting, you know, out covering your wood or whatnot. It breaks down and breaks down and breaks down. So a piece of tarp. Next thing we found was as clear as day, this teeny, teeny, teeny little red microfiber from someone's jacket or shirt or something like that. So like, you know, things are so much more complicated. And that was, those, those are, you know. Those are the things that, that I just got off right off the bat. The other stuff that, you know, the, t- the teeny plastics that are being ingested by, you know, the organisms and stuff like the, the, the different plankton and fish and whatnot and you know, the fact that we're finding in our bodies and, you know, it's just, it's challenging. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I used to work in an algal study also in college. And, um, yeah, just looking at that, samples from around the bay, you see little microfibers. And then even, like, preparing slides, you'd have to hold your breath so you wouldn't accidentally blow air and like blow a piece yeah. of your shirt up to oh. slide. Oh. And, and, I, and I should say too, like I know every time I have conversations like this, I, I think there's this mindset that, oh, it's all doom and gloom. It's all lost and it's not. And I think that the message that I always try to put out is that it's not all doom and gloom. The times are changing and we need to adjust with the times. And now is the time to for lots of different opportunities, but we need to be open to those different opportunities. We need to look beyond what we've always done in the past and look for 
um, you know, how, how we can be really embrace resilience, you know, how we can, you know, even the plastic issues, everyone's like, well, I mean, everything's plastic. What are you going to do? Well, there are a lot of smart people out there that are reusing plastics, you know, sometimes good, sometimes not so good, but at least they're trying. It's the same thing with all of this stuff, you know, like, you know, ways to, can we make our, you know, septic systems better? Of course we can. You know, can we remove more nutrients? Of course we can. You know, can we make our treatment facilities more? Yes, of course we can. You know, can we go more organic? Can we go, you know, like all these different things. Um, there are some really, really great opportunities. And, and, and I, I I always like to make sure that that is first and foremost, that it's not doom and gloom, in that, in that we just have to be open to those opportunities and, and, and really share our knowledge, share our viewpoints, share, share our experiences and build off of those to, 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 to have a bright future. So. Good. And on a high note there, because I was getting, I was getting down in the dumps. <laughs> no, it's always. No, I know it is. It's hard when you go down this path and you start thinking about all of the all of the work that needs to be done. But I think you're right. I think you know being able to spread this message and spread it to you know I think a lot of times you find you navigate towards like minded people, but we need to start going outside of our comfort zones and reaching people who are. And get outside. You know, like, we, yeah. we gotta, we gotta get away from our technology. We gotta get outside. We gotta, same thing. We, we need to embrace nature. We need to be part of it. We need to, you know, we need to see the changes that are happening. Cause that's, that's how I know. If I was just doing everything from the office, I would have no idea what the water quality was. You know, I, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been on the boat and all of a sudden there's a huge oil sheen out there in the middle of the river. And I'm calling the Coast Guard and DEM to come there to deal with it because there's some, some oil spill. You know, or, you know, discover it like the whole day, like I was actually out the day I mentioned about the, you know, 75 plus acres of algae coming to the surface. I was actually out, we were doing the, the uh, monthly testing with DEM. So I provide the boat support so that DEM can continue doing their bacteria testing and also testing for harmful algal blooms down here. And I've been doing that for, oh, at least 10 years. And, and I had been talking to DEM so much about the fact that, you know, we need to, we need to be talking more about nutrients and DO. We need to do a study that, you know, we've done the bacteria study. Now we need to do that. And, and again, getting, you know, those in positions of power and whatnot to understand, like, it's one thing if I say, well, there's so much allergy on the bottom. It's another thing if we're out there testing and all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, how big is this map? And it, 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 it the timing was perfect. That was the impetus for kind of moving forward a lot more, a lot more quickly than, initially had been thought. So, so we're still learning, you know, but that's the important thing. Well, I think one thing that I'll take away from this conversation, David, is that you seem to be the perfect person to be in this position because you can handle that doom and gloom, but face it with a sense of, okay, we're going to get this done. We're going to move forward. We're going to, you know, like the positivity that that job requires um, you to maintain, even though you're seeing it's hard. I, I, like I said, I'll be the first to admit it is hard, but I see these really great case studies where towns have, have moved forward some really great projects, and I always highlight those. I really do. I'm saying, see, it doesn't have to be another a gigantic building. It can be this. And there, you know, like the Andrea. The Andrea Hotel decided after to not rebuild the hotel, and they have a thriving business. Mm-hmm. And basically, they don't have much infrastructure there, so if, it does, if there is a big storm, they can kind of close up shop and, and then just put it right back up after that. And it's happening in communities all over the place. Like those are the kind of examples, but you have to look for them. And, and, and again, I think the funding too is moving towards that direction is that, 
you know, federal funding that's coming in, even more, even more state and local funding is really pushing towards, um, you know, resilient habitats and resilient infrastructure, not just, you know, they're, they're not going to pay for someone to put a seawall up or build a road in the same exact spot. You know, they're, they're looking for something different. And those are the opportunities. You take those opportunities say, okay, great. I know this is how we did it before, but what if we did this? And let's try it out, you know, and, and see what happens. I was playing Monopoly over the weekend, and it was electronic banking, so it was, like, updated. So instead of the railroads, it was um, airports, and then there were two... There's an internet provider and a cell service provider. But those are the things I always own. Like, that's my goal to get in Monopoly. So I got them. But, but um, yeah. I was playing with my friends who know me so well. And when I acquired the first airport, they're like, oh, are you tearing it down to make a nature preserve? <laughs> even, even in your you fictional like life. <laughs> For the next 60 seconds, enjoy this nature mindfulness activity with the sound of a babbling brook at Wildwood Preserve. Well, Dave, we uh, have two more things to cover real quick. Sure. That is a a Westerly Land Trust fun fact and our conservation tip. So I'll start with a fun fact. I can really do that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to Winnipeg Farm Preserve for a minute. So Winnipeg Farm Preserve, which is the Land Trust's preserve, contains agricultural land in corn and hay, woodlands, freshwater wetlands, and a salt marsh. It's only 35 acres, but it's amazing how many ecosystems can fit within that small space, which kind of goes along with what we were saying, that everything is interconnected. But right next door to our preserve is the Lathrop Wildlife Refuge, owned by the Audubon Society of Rhode Island, which is another another example of how organizations can work together to conserve space and reduce or affect habitat fragmentation, build up that resiliency. So I wanted to take a minute and talk about the work that we were doing at Winnipeg Farm Preserve, which, again, is purely... Resilience, um, building resiliency against sea level rise. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, I don't know how many years it's been now, but it's been several years um, of doing some, you know, initial investigations of those sites. I owe mostly credit to Wendley Ferguson, who is our, our director of habitat conservation. I get to work um, proudly alongside of her, and I learned so much from her. So, um, and she's doing projects like this all over the state. Obviously, I focus more on these projects down in this area, so anytime there's the opportunity, I'm the first one to grab a shovel and head on out. But here's a great opportunity, like I mentioned before, where you know you have this preserved property in the northwest corner of Winnipeg Pond that normally, most places, would have already been developed. Um, but both of the of both the land trust and Audubon had the foresight to you know to work with the, the property owners and to preserve that property in, in, in perpetuity. And, and now you have an area where, as sea levels get up, get higher, 
you have a place for marshes to migrate to. And you're exactly right. The, the Winnipeg Farm Preserve is such a cool property and diverse um, group of habitats there, you know, from the fen to the, you know, like to the old rock walls, you know, from, you know, from farming days and stuff like that. But again, because of the challenges of sea level rise and whatnot, those areas, that flooding events, those higher tides, were really pushing the water much, much further in. And because that water was trapped in those, those upper areas there and not able to come out, it was basically killing off the vegetation, changing the, you know, really changing the substrate underneath your feet, making it a lot, a lot softer, or basically a lot less hospitable. That's what it was. A little, <laughs> a lot less hospitable for the, the native vegetation and animals that actually live there. And by working with the land trust and getting the, um, and, and working with DEM, um, with their mosquito abatement program and, and, and utilizing the, the low ground pressure excavator to be able to, to, you know, re-excavate some of the old uh, drainage points, but also dig smaller runnels in that area. We're able to drain those upper areas there to, to get, um, to not only get the fresh water, the impounded fresh water off the marsh, but also allow the salt water to go in and actually um, go further up there to, to keep some of the more invasive vegetation like Phragmites at bay. Really, really great, great project. With any of our projects, especially our habitat projects, they're never they're never one and done. You just don't go there, do the work, and leave. A lot of what we talk about is the restoration, you know, the habitat restoration. With climate change, a lot of the restoration that was considered restoration in the past is really more considered adaptation. Because what we're trying to do is we're not trying to restore it back to what it used to what it used to be, right? We're helping it adapt to changing conditions and that's the big big piece of this here um, especially with salt marshes because again you take the the NOAA models and you look at what potentially is coming um, you see what's already happened and you see the challenges there that you know we need to help these these habitats adapt and that's the really really key word and, and, and again by partnering with you know land trusts such as yours and others um, it's it, it, a, it's a, it's a it's, it makes for a really great partnership uh, but also a great way to kind of educate your members about of, about some of your more coastal property and the changes that you're seeing and how they can learn more about that. And, and then maybe in the future, they think about like, hey, I have this piece of property here. Instead of, you know, selling it, maybe I'll donate it, you know, and, and, and it just becomes part of a larger system of, you know, of really protected property along the coast, which is really what we need. You know, like it's, it's hard with coastal property. And I remember... The preservation of Bill's Island on in, in Quanti Pond. And they wanted to develop a house on that. It's in the middle of the pond there. And ultimately, I think the Wikipark Foundation, yeah, the Wikipark Foundation ended up purchasing that with the understanding that in some time in the future, it'll probably be underwater. But at least if you can preserve those habitats, those ecosystem functions for as long as you possibly can, you know, and it's important. It really, it's, it's super important going forward. So. And our conservation tip kind of. Ties into what we're talking about, so that's awesome. I wanted to bring up, we live in a culture that's very consumer-heavy, and I recently heard about this challenge, this year-long challenge of not buying new clothes, because the dyes and the fabrics that are used to create clothes um, are discharged and produce a lot of wastewater, basically. So, challenge is to go a year without buying new clothes, whether that be not buying clothes at all, or thrift shopping. Which is awesome. Highly recommend. Is thrift shopping acceptable in this challenge? Uh, I do I, love a good thrift shop. I would, I would consider it. I, w- I would think so. Okay. You're reusing. You're reusing. I, I think that, that that would. I think that that. I, I agree with that. I think. And even if, if if I know that challenge is to go a whole year without it, but even if you were to reduce it down by a half, 
or two thirds or something like that. Take this, think twice about every decision because every decision does have a consequence. It really does. So you have to think. You have to, you know, especially from a water conservation perspective and in a microfiber and, you know, like all these things. So the, you know, it's so challenging. It really is when it comes down to it. But there is, that's, I think the whole, your opportunities, go to a great thrift shop and find a really nice, you know, jacket or something that has been barely worn that someone threw away that you can reuse um, going forward. And then you're most likely supporting a small business as well. Absolutely. A lot of those are also small businesses. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's a twofer. Yep. <laughs> a twofer, that's right. And not creating microfibers. Yes. Definitely. And probably and reducing the amount that of um, transportation taken to deliver those clothes to Transportation, water costs, the charging costs, everything. They're saving money, too. It's great. It's, huge. it's great. It's all, all the benefits are there. Just like land trust missions. You do one thing, it has lasting benefits everywhere else. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. In perpetuity. You got it. I buy most of my clothes, or my kids' clothes anyway, <laughs> secondhand, because they go through stuff so fast that it's oh, just it so pointless to buy it brand new. Uh, <laughs> yep. I think that was a perfect Absolutely. way to end. But Dave, did you want to plug any social media or any projects you're working on? I know hopefully by the time this gets released in August, things will be... I know we're, we're, things are starting to become more normal. Um, so... We are starting to really offer, open up, sorry, open up our volunteer opportunities. Um, and so in August, stay tuned for um, a bunch of information on uh, International Coastal Cleanup. So Save the Bay is the um, statewide sponsor for International Coastal Cleanup. And you, you, we usually do about 100 cleanups um, during that time period, like that September through October. Um, so there might be a, a, a great opportunity there. Or even an opportunity for the land trust to uh, to do something. We can do something together. How's that that sounds great. Um, I love it. Um, but so stay tuned for that. Um, our 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 easiest way to find out about all this stuff is is we is our is any of our social media or our website. Our website is savebay.org. There's no the in there, even though we are save the bay. Savebay.org, and you can find us on on basically any social media platform and stuff like that. And even even myself too. I'm on my I I my, I'm Coast Keeper Ri on most. Uh, that's my handle for most of my stuff. So awesome. I know we've been. I well, I personally have been bugging you, Dave, about getting out on one of those boats because I want to do water sailing. I know. So and yeah, we now we can. I'm really excited about it because okay. like uh, yeah, we'll definitely do that because now the boat's back in the water and and um, we don't have as many restrictions. Let's definitely do that. I um, it will be. Very, it's very important for me because. <laughs> I live on the Pocketuck River, and I need to have, like, good, solid data to show my kids, get out of the river. <laughs> Do not oh, ever go no, in I the know. river. <laughs> and it, it, but the thing is, like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to, you know, like, our water should be clean enough for people to swim in. I know. They really should when I it know. comes down to it. I mean, like, again, the, the Clean Water Act, 50 years old, you know, but you're, but you're right. So, and, and like I said, I think when I talked before about getting you and Jen out to go, um, you know, see the downtown section where you guys have some yeah, and stuff yeah. because it's it you know and, and I, I know you guys go out on your boat too so like I think that there's um um there's some there's, it's some really good things to see because that really puts everything into perspective of how how built up that down section downtown section there is but also where there are opportunities you know and there's yeah. some great opportunities you guys have the you know you have your um your 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 um, 
uh, your garden down there and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, great way to reuse these spaces so yeah, yeah absolutely yeah great well it, it's good to you know be somewhat returning to normal for that aspect yes. <laughs> definitely and for, I mean, for a lot of other reasons obviously but yes yes yeah yep. great Dave thank all you right. so much and thank you for all the work that you do to keep our water clean or to get thank our water you. clean thank you both <laughs> this is great and I'm, uh, I'm anytime I'm happy to come back awesome thanks so much thanks, we'll talk Dave. to you soon Alright, sounds good. Have a good one. Bye. Dave Prescott was also one of our featured guest speakers on our 2021 Earth Day webinar, which you can find on the Westerly Library and Wilcox Parks YouTube page or on our website under the Learn About Us tab. Watch our videos. Thanks. Thanks to Dave Prescott for being on our show. And thank you for taking your headphones and streaming service down to the beach to listen to Voices of the Land. If you would like to keep up with the Westerly Land Trust between episodes, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, or go to the website at www.westerlylandtrust.org. From there, you can find more information on our conservation mission and community engagement. You can also donate through our website to support our work, including this podcast. By becoming a Land Trust donor, which gives you special access to events and activities throughout the year. We also have our Trails app to help you explore our preserves and hiking trails. Just search Westerly Land Trust in your app store. And of course, subscribe to and rate Voices of the Land to make it easier for others to find. And tell a friend about it, too. Thank you, and tune in again next time. Thank you for listening to Voices of the Land. Your continued support helps us preserve and podcast the places you cherish. Feel free to rate and subscribe to this podcast to help others find it. And together, we can help everyone feel more connected to our natural world.